Now I really think that biodynamics is is broader than just preparations. It's it could be an expression of love of the land, basically, and um, the land's ability to bring people together. Uh, read up about it, meet some other growers, um, get some get some 500 in your hands and smell it and squeeze it and try to just get a feel for it and put it out in your garden and see if you notice any difference and small steps, just have a go rather than being too sceptical. Welcome to this podcast series, Biodynamic Farmers and Gardeners in Australia. The series was commissioned by Biodynamic Agriculture Australia Limited and produced by Householders Options to Protect the Environment, Hope Incorporated Australia. Biodynamic Agriculture Australia Limited is a not-for-profit company located in Bellingen, New South Wales. It has been making and supplying biodynamic preparations as well as supporting biodynamic growing in Australia for over 30 years. Biodynamic Agriculture Australia Limited values biodynamics as a practical and holistic technique that is able to regenerate soil, supercharge organic growing, restore biodiversity and work with Mother Nature. The podcast series was produced on and adjacent to the traditional lands of the Jarawa, Gayabal, Yugara and Waka Waka First Nations peoples of the surrounding region. We pay respect to the past, present and emerging leaders of all First Nation Australians in this country and celebrate the unique contributions their cultures make to this place. And in the context of this podcast series, particularly those contributions involving Indigenous respect for and stewardship of the nature of Australia, with its attendant spiritual and practical care for country, the sovereignty of which was never ceded. Hello, my name is Andrew Nicholson, and I am the producer of the Biodynamic Farmers and Gardeners in Australia podcast series. My guest on this episode of the series is Sam Statham, who grows wine grapes, olive and fig trees on his farm Rosnay, located near to the town of Canoundra in the central west of New South Wales. This is also the home of Sam's family, his wife Simone, and their three children, Molly, Georgie and Floyd. Sam himself grew up with his two brothers on a family farm in New South Wales, which he describes as a bush paradise of rough, hilly country, mostly non-arable and often drought declared. During a life-changing trip around New Zealand in the 1990s, Sam visited biodynamic farms there and took that biodynamic experience back into the family farm. Over the last 20 years or so, Sam and his own family have continued to develop their farm using organic and biodynamic practices, as well as turning it into a community title subdivision, with multiple growers working together under an organic covenant. A written account of Sam's biodynamic growing experiences is also contained in an associated profile booklet of all the guests interviewed for this podcast series, entitled Stories of Our Biodynamic Farmers and Gardeners in Australia. Please see Biodynamic Agriculture Australia Limited's website for further details of that publication. Sam, a very warm welcome to you. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Thanks, Andrew. It's, uh, it's really great to be here and I'm looking forward to it as well. So let's start our discussion about your journey into biodynamic growing and the work on your farm through a fuller self-introduction. So can you give us an outline of your work on Rosnay Farm and give us a bit of a mini profile of its location and main characteristics? Yeah, great, Andrew. Yeah, well, look, we've been um, farming here at Rosnay since 1997 on a block that's 
uh, was originally 140 hectares and now it's about 32 hectares at uh, eight kilometres southwest of Canoundra on the uh, south bank of the Blubula River, uh, about 10 kilometres upstream from where it joins the Lachlan River at Goolagong. So um, our farm is part of a community title farm, as you mentioned, it's, it's Rivers Road Organic Farms. Um, that's a, um, a fantastic structure that we're part of and we can talk about that a bit more later. But, yeah, basically our farm, uh, we, we grow olives and figs and wine grapes on these beautiful red clay soils that slope down north to the Blubula River and we've got beautiful views up to Mount Canobolis and Orange, 65 kilometres north of us. And uh, those soils are just fantastic with high water holding capacity, very good fertility and good for growing things like olives and grapes. And, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's been some rough history there on that farm, of course. Um, over the 70s and 80s, it was continuously cropped and, um, you know, there was erosion as a result of that. And we've been just basically regenerating and, and trying to bring it back from there. And, um, and now the, uh, the soils are fantastic and, you know, that's partly because of biodynamics. What a lovely pen picture of the property and the surrounding landscapes and also picking up on that, in a sense, inadvertent experiment of the fact that your property was a conventional industrial farmed property before you got there. And so there is almost that before and after aspect uh, to this in terms of the beneficial effects of biodynamics, as you just implied. So thanks for that. And just to carry on that sort of thread that we've been looking at, and particularly for listeners new to biodynamic ideas or those keen to gain further knowledge, what about this question? From your perspective, Sam, in 2023, how would you describe biodynamics? What are some of the basic principles and benefits of biodynamic methods as they apply to your type of wine, grape, olive and fig growing? Great question. It's uh, it's pretty hard to answer. And my answer to that has probably been evolving over the last 25 years to the point where now I really think that biodynamics is is broader than just preparations. It's It could be an expression of love of the land, basically, and um, the land's ability to bring people together. So when you read Steiner's agriculture lectures, you get great ideas that you can build on on your farm and uh, essentially the preparations is the main tool with, with which a farmer can, you know, um, give the land his, his love, positive, positive intent and, you know, uh, become part of the farm. So I really don't think there's a conflict between the very different perspectives on the spectrum of biodynamics from your traditional sort of authentic, uh, mainly physical approaches using the preparations themselves to... Uh, people I've seen using radionics and field broadcasters uh, to do very similar things or even your more Indigenous approach where you sort of have a communion, communion with like the boss animals like kangaroos and sort of ask for guidance and just pay respect for the land. So, um, yeah, this, it's, it's, to me it's very broad. I've heard this from other guests in the series. As listeners go through these interviews, they will hear this also, that, that there's a spectrum of approaches methods and practices, call them what you will, as there would be after a 100 years or so of biodynamic theory, evolution and practice development. But some very strong elements that have come out in general terms from those other interviewees are things like love of the land, bringing community together, 
that social aspect of biodynamics and regenerative growing practices. And so in a sense, we're, we're coming up to this next question here. As you said, that property you're on now has been farmed in a different way. So let's uh, just take a, a comparative question to dig that into that in a bit more depth. How would you say your work differs from conventional growing? You started to answer this question, but how, for instance, might you, your produce differ from what people find in their local supermarket, say? It's a, there's a whole spectrum of, of ways that farming differs. And I'd say at one end of the spectrum, you've got the high input, highly controlled scientific or materialist scientific approach to agriculture where everything can be standardised and and uh, I think, you know, it doesn't really reflect a, a, a real view of reality. Uh, but that's your mainstream conventional GMO-style agriculture, which I guess you do see in the supermarkets, uh, especially now with the uh, labelling of GMOs not being very good. But basically that goes through a spectrum where you've then got your more low-input conventional farmers, which I guess we were up at Baraba, you know, back in the 80s through to your, um, yeah, your organic farming, regenerative farming and biodynamic farming where you're kind of working with the situation rather than trying to totally control the situation. Uh, you, you, yeah, it's, it's sort of like you're um, becoming more uh, flexible and holistic in your view of production. So you sort of... In a way, you're just manipulating an ecosystem and trying to, you know, extract a, so, some surplus product, you know, a, a crop or a or a fibre from that from that ecosystem. So it's kind of, yeah. Sorry, that's a really long answer, but it's uh, we, we'd probably be you know three quarters of the way along that spectrum. I mean, our farm is a is a horticulture operation where we've got uh, you know plots of certain things vines or olives and, and then we've planted as much as we can of like native species around the outside and biodiversity areas and you know those biodiversity areas are, are, are required in the organic farming system but you know we also see actual a lot of uh, benefits from those in our in our uh, production areas so anyway uh, there you go there's a bit of an outline so sam i think we're hearing here about a sort of continuum a range as, as you might expect in the real world, where one size does not fit all. There are lots of different approaches uh, to agriculture and farming practices. Um, but again, that biodynamic, organic, permaculture, regenerative approach down, let's say, one end of that continuum on the right-hand side, let's say, you've just mentioned some features of that, working with nature, ecosystem protection, soil biology enhancement, cover crops, and then at the other end of the continuum, let's say the left-hand end of the continuum or range or spectrum, perhaps a more dominating of nature type model where you have major chemical inputs going in and other major impacts onto the soil's health in terms of cropping. And I just wonder out loud if whether we might be moving, hopefully we are, from left to right uh, in a sense on that continuum. For instance, I've heard that regenerative agriculture generally is being taken up more widely is on the increase in australia but anyway i suppose that remains to be seen but coming back to the interview here 
We've been dodging around in the modern era in 2023. So now let's go back in time a bit here, because I think it's always interesting to hear about the human interest story behind the innovative people like you who are helping progress new ways of doing things, in your case, regenerative and biodynamic agriculture approaches. So let's get to that question. How did you first become involved with biodynamic growing? Looking back in time, how did you first get involved? For instance, did you gradually get into it? Were there light bulb moments? Were there early influential mentors? And what resources did you tap into to build up your knowledge and expertise? I grew up on a on a farm up northern New South Wales where we had very extensive agriculture. So it was kind of organic by default in many ways. Um, I I do remember the smell of Roundup, though, and, you know, Dad used to dip sheep and stuff like that. But my grandfather was right into organic gardening. He was actually a doctor, and um, he had books about Rudolf Steiner, interestingly enough, uh, on his bookshelf. And, you know, it was actually after he passed away that I sort of went in there and and nicked a couple of books and um, read, uh, read this one book in particular by John Soper, about biodynamic gardening in South Africa, and I happened to be on a on a boat going over to uh, New Zealand, sort of in between uh, university and and embarking on uh, my uh, sort of career path. And uh, to me, it was a bit of a revelation. It was a, quite a sudden shift in in the in my way of looking at farming. And um, so basically, um, I was fairly uh, skeptical initially, and just happened to run into a guy in a pub in New Zealand and he just said to me, don't you know, don't knock it until you've seen it because he's got mates up the road who are doing it. So I actually went up and worked on this farm with Ian and Jeter Henderson uh, just near Christchurch and and then just the journey started from there. I went working on other farms and uh, herb herb uh, production, uh, community, you know, Steiner communities and things in New Zealand and it was just a, a huge eye-opener. And... Um, yeah, basically came back to Australia uh, inspired. Always interesting to hear, you know, how individual guests got from A to Z or or that they're still moving towards Z on their journey of professional discovery. You know, that early reading sort of piquing your interest and then getting involved with people who are actually doing this stuff, the biodynamic um, work on the land getting sort of enthused with that and then bringing that that influence back into your own uh, farming practice your family's farming practice in australia so let's stay with with um, that biodynamic focus and come back into the, the present moment and tell us a bit more you've started to, to tell us about this but tell us a bit more about those biodynamic techniques that you're using on your farm now and specifically what do you reckon are the beneficial impacts they've had on the landscape there, the soils, the animals, the plants, on your property? And and also, I gather, you know, what beneficial impacts they've had on you personally. Um, has becoming a biodynamic grower changed your you personally in any way? So there's a two-part question there. First of all, uh, the, the improvements on the property, also then the improvements possibly to yourself and your own lifestyle. Well, we, I guess started out using biodynamics as part of a shotgun approach. Like we used a lot of different things to try to bring our farm back from you know, this, the new farm down here at Canandra to bring it back to life. And we, you know, we used biodynamics as part of that. So, you know, 
compost and biodynamic preparations, but also a lot of other things like lime and you know, crushed basalt dust, um, gypsum or um, rock phosphate, uh, worm juice, fish fertilizer, seaweed, deep ripping, um, a whole lot of things which combined with biodynamics you know, did, did bring it back to life over the next five years or, or so. And you know the question of whether you know of, of what role biodynamics played in that is it's it's not something I can answer with a scientific hat on. It's it's but I, my gut feeling is it's definitely helped um, from a simplistic view of it. A bit like putting a, a culture into a cheese, you know, spreading the the, the horn manure. You're you're actually just simply spreading lots of beneficial microbes uh, that have been in you know, oxygenated water and energized with rhythmic stirring and basically putting the influence or the, the, the actual bacteria and fungi out onto your land. So to me, it's logical and, and the benefits of, are there. You can see the, the massive change in the structure of the soil now from the powdery or either, either powdery or concrete soil. So you'd have what they call Sunday soils here, the, the eroded and worn out soil is what happens is it rains on Friday it's too wet to plough it or even do anything on Saturday. You get a brief window where you can maybe do some cultivation on Sunday and then it's it's set back into concrete and powder if you try to do anything on the Monday. So that's why they call them Sunday soils. But now, uh, you know, the soil's uh, crumbly. You know, there's, there's like it, this topsoil is just made of fine little balls of worm cast, you know, totally what they call structured topsoil and uh, the roots of the plants are going down deep into the subsoil and the whole thing is is not anymore it, it's no longer sort of repellent to rain like when it when the rain hits the the soil soaks it in like a sponge so uh, you can see the uh, the benefit of of using those practices and uh, we have done a certain amount of measurement of you know organic matter increases and you know from a quarter of a percent to two percent or whatever it sort of depends on the situation but yeah there's certainly been huge benefits from uh, from from using those organic and biodynamic practices but one of the interesting things that i saw in new zealand was um ian henderson's stirring machine and because i'd only just been reading about it and i'm i'm just thinking oh wow this is amazing but i had a very um simplistic sort of naive point of view about it and i said to him you know aren't you supposed to be stirring these preparations by hand instead of using machine because in the book i read you're supposed to be stirring it by hand and and this is where it gets to be cosmic because you're putting your intention into the preparation so you're actually physically stirring a, a bucket or a barrel of of water with the uh, horn manure which is the manure that you've put in a cow horn and <clears throat> fermented or, or slowly changed over the period of six months in winter and when you get it out it's teeming with microbes and you're mixing that in water but you're, you're actually thinking about it and you're focusing on improving your farm and, and improving the soil and it's you know it's almost like a meditation or, or a form of prayer or whatever so that's what they call intention and I'm like you can't do that with a machine and then his answer sort of was interesting he, he said even though I'm doing it with a machine, I made that machine and it's 
I made it with my intention to do this and now it's helping me to spread my intention over my farm. And that's sort of like where you go into this uh, spectrum of biodynamics where, you know, you've actually got all sorts of possibilities uh, where it opens up and then obviously there's a lot of debate and disagreement about this, but um, that that was a real eye-opener. And although, you know, I, we haven't built a field broadcaster on our farm, uh, it's, it's, it's something I do want to do eventually and I, I totally respect people who, who, who are doing it and, you know, they've seen the results on their own farms. So, you know, that's where it kind of becomes very cosmic and, and bigger than us. But um, I'm sure, you know, a lot of things are out there and we're just not open to them. And Sam, just coming back to that rather long and convoluted question I asked you in, in the first place, which was also on the per personal side of biodynamics. Uh, I know there's been some beneficial impacts that you've experienced in your own life and lifestyle down there. Can you give us some insight into those? Biodynamics has changed me for sure. Um, it's become part of a wider journey, um, but basically... The idea of the farm as a self-reliant organism makes you look at things differently. So you're always trying to find solutions to problems from things that are already there. And, um, you know, you're recycling everything as much as possible, kind of like you're, you're encouraging that farm ecosystem and, and the whole cycling of, of stuff. So having farm buildings, renovations and other stuff that we build out of just materials from what we call the back fence line materials depot. It's just, you know, stuff that's been put aside and eventually finds a, a use. And, yeah, but um, I know mentally um, the spiritual side of biodynamics and the idea of a world, you know, that's cloaked in etheric energy or, or whatever you want to call it can lead you down rabbit holes and, you know, sometimes it can be hard to reconcile that spiritual stuff with everyday life. But, um, yeah, I do like the idea that it comes down to, you know, just positive intention and, and putting your, your doing your best you can for your land. And I think I've, I've benefited so much just physically and mentally from having the opportunity to do that. To You know, I feel very lucky to, to have been able to uh, work with a farm like this and, and improve it and, and recreate a bit of an ecosystem and, it's been good for my health, you know, having a physical job like this as well as mentally, you know, to, to also be able to be creative and, uh, and do things like this, interviews and whatever. I mean, it's all part of that creative and, and spreading the word. And, and when people actually buy the, the product, you just feel really proud that people appreciate it and, and it's just uh, I guess that's the final thing is, is that, your customers are the ones who are actually keeping the boat afloat, keeping the whole idea alive, and it's fantastic. It certainly sounds inspiring, and you, you can just feel some of the positive energy there as you're talking about that. That interesting theme of interconnection, I've heard this before across the series, you know, to give it its fancy term, holism, the principle that everything is connected to everything else. And I'm just thinking, although other forms of agriculture might do this as well, it, it just does seem to be second nature within biodynamics and other forms of regenerative agriculture that you would be looking at stuff like recycling of materials, almost that circular economy approach as an important intentional focus to the work. And that's another idea, intention, that seems to have emerged throughout the series, the idea 
of intention that is bringing a close focus to watching what you're doing at all times, exploring the consequences of what you're doing, thinking ahead. So making the biodynamic preparations and putting them out, but also closely observing their effects, then fine-tuning further work in the light of that observation. That intentional approach seems to be a very strong strand within biodynamic practice. And so, Sam, we've been talking here about some bigger picture benefits, for instance, health benefits uh, in the form of superior nutritional quality and superior taste benefits of food that customers experience uh, from well-grown biodynamic produce such as yours. Also, the personal health benefits um, of physical hands-on work, you know, on the land, such as you described, but almost with that meditative approach coming in as an extra sort of beneficial experience. And so given this bigger picture viewpoint, uh, it might be a good time to ask one more bigger picture question. And we've already started uh, referring here to Rudolf Steiner. And so this brings us into a more detailed discussion about the spiritual and cosmic interest within overall biodynamic practice and philosophy, because that does go back to the original ideas of Rudolf Steiner in the 1920s. And of course, there has been a lot of water under the bridge since then. And and you've been hinting uh, at some of the adaptations to ideas that you came up with, um, for instance, or you observed, for instance, in terms of that stirring machine in New Zealand, that anecdote you gave us back at the beginning of the interview. So my question here is, what has been your experience of that more spiritual and cosmic aspect of biodynamic working philosophy? And how have you approached adapting those aspects and incorporating them incorporating them into your growing strategies yeah so my my experience of that spiritual aspect um has been a, a bit of a journey as well and i mean it's, it's kind of personal and it's a sort of just a, a snapshot in time of of my current thoughts about it all but um i think steiner was trying to help people who are in the really materialist sort of worldview to get glimpses into uh, some of the laws of nature that operate on multiple sort of planes of existence or, you know, multiple sort of levels. And, and some of the laws of nature that that we do experience and we see every day, but using substances or um, I don't even know if it has to be a substance, but uh, intention, as you mentioned before, to to try to use those laws of nature to your advantage. So, you know, it's just kind of, to me, um, I, I, I'm interested in that stuff, but it's, it is hard to, to use in your everyday physical life. But when you think about it, um, you know, there's, there's vibration everyone knows there's vibration at different levels and um you know we we try to raise our vibration you know and that sort of thing in in life if you think about that sort of stuff uh, you've got you know you've got the forces of attraction and repulsion you know you, you can feel something in your heart you know something's right and um and you're attracted to it and you know the ideas of harmony and balance and beauty and um <clears throat> even the the rhythms of up and down in our daily energy and motivation and i mean even the 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 rule the laws of cause and effect i mean every action and even every thought that you have potentially has an effect so 
I mean, it's it's huge and it, it becomes overwhelming to think about the universe in that way. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, when you're out there and you're just stirring some preparations and putting them in the trailer and spraying them on the land, you know, you, you, you do ponder those things uh, as you go and it's all part of that, I don't know, physical meditation. I don't know what it is, but you're sitting in the ute and, you, and you're spreading preparation 500 and it just feels right and it's a real pleasure to do. So they're the source of ideas that go through your mind anyway. So, Sam, really fascinating to hear that there, as with other guests in the series, how you have brought your own particular interpretation and adaptation of Steiner's original ideas, um, as might not be unsurprising over the course of 100 years, those ideas being adapted. As with other guests in the series, you found your own ways, however, to adapt what we might term pure biodynamic principles in the light of growing realities in 2023 in the 21st century. You know, as a fan of the history of ideas, for me, this is a great example of how ideas can evolve and be adapted over time. Or perhaps that doesn't happen in some cases, regrettably. But look, staying with this idea of adaptation and coming to this as an idea of one way of managing change, that being to adapt to uh, you know, new realities, different ways of doing things in, in order to meet fresh challenges, for instance. We know that even achieving progressive beneficial change, such as, you know, regenerative growing based on biodynamic principles, that rarely happens without some degree of setback or frustration being experienced along the way. So in your case, Sam, what have been some of your challenges that you've had to overcome or are still working to overcome on Rosnay Farm down there near Canoundra in New South Wales? Well, there's no shortage of challenges, um, apart from the original challenge, which was just this run-down farm and trying to rebuild soil fertility and using a fairly uh, textbook approach to, to the biodynamic stuff with that and just, you know, the 500 and the compost and that basic challenge. But then there's down the track there's other challenges waiting for you there's pests and weeds and diseases that still affect you and and um you know like uh it's kind of a bit easier in a drought but in in the in those wet years you you, you face a lot of challenges we've had um well we've had starlings was one of the big pests we used to have uh then you have things like snails last year was so wet we had an infestation with snails um, then you have just generally cool seasons and slow ripening, or you may have powdery mildew and and uh, you know fungal infection of your of your vines. So they're all challenges that biodynamics does offer some solutions to. Uh, whether or not those solutions always work is another question, and and this is where you're sort of going off road and and doing what your intuition tells you to do may or may not be effective and and you know i've had i've had both but i, I think in the early days we just uh called a friend and you know this is 20 years ago we uh we had a lot to do with uh cheryl kemp who was the education officer of the biodynamic farming and gardening association as it was called back then and and i'd ring her up and just get the actual inside scoop on the ideal time and and uh, method of of say 
peppering an insect pest, which was actually, in this case, it was a, it was a bird pest, starlings, who actually probably, it, they took about a third of our Chardonnay uh, back in 1999, 2000. I guess the, the canopy wasn't very big. The vines were still pretty young and it was also sort of beginning of the drought and so there, and it was a bit of a dry spell. They were probably just looking for looking for water as well as eating our crops, but basically they were being a pest and they were, you know, taking it away. And Cheryl just gave me the ideal sort of um, scenario and, you know, so uh, peppering, for anyone who doesn't know what it is, it's, it's a bit of a weird one, but... You take the pest and you reduce it to its lowest common denominator, to its finest white ash. You basically just barbecue it, char it, blowtorch it, whatever you need to do to turn it into ash. So basically we would shoot one starling and uh, cook it on the, on, the, on the flame and reduce it down to fine ash and then you... You're actually reducing that ash, but you're also uh, potentizing it, which is what they call when you dilute a substance and shake the hell out of it or, you know, energize it and then dilute it again by a factor of 10 and then again and again and again. And the number of times that you dilute becomes the the number in front of the X when you sort of name this thing. So it might be a, a 7X, which would be a a bit of starling ash diluted, initially diluted in, in water and then just slowly re-diluted uh, seven times, right? And that's sort of paradoxically very powerful compared to just a one dilution. But anyway, I mean, sometimes you suspend your disbelief, you're on a learning journey and you just have a go and I followed Cheryl's instructions and it was amazing the result that happened after spraying this diluted ash of a starling uh, over three days when there was um, Venus in Scorpio. That was the key time that Cheryl identified and and it worked. I mean, I got the neighbours to come out and have a look and they saw it too. There was starlings which normally fly like a, um, like a hive, you know, like a hive mind. They sort of, you, they're amazing to watch actually. Then there's thousands of them flying like insects. And they all seem to have the same mind. Well, they went from that to being individual birds scattered all over the paddock, up a tree there, or just sitting on the driveway there. And um, yeah, I could just walk up and pick one up off the ground, and it wouldn't fly away. They were kind of groggy, and they certainly weren't flying around in in a in a hive. And um, and that actually got rid of them for the length of time we needed to get rid of them for so we could you know, harvest a crop of Chardonnay. So I was astounded. But then another time I went and had a go and I didn't ring Cheryl and I just looked at a sort of basic, fairly generic calendar and went, oh, yeah, that looks a bit like Venice and Scorpio or that's practical. But then it actually didn't work and um, and I wasted my time. So there is lessons to be learnt from following experienced advice of others whilst developing your own intuitive um, confidence but you're always going to have setbacks and failures along the way but um, yeah there's other times more recently when we had snails uh, that was only last year uh, the peppering did work but it only worked for a week um, 
again, I wish I called Cheryl on that one, but at least they did work for a week and, and my wife noticed and we were like, oh, geez, where did all those snails go? They just literally just disappeared and then must have gone back into their holes in the ground. But then they were actually um, devouring our vines last year. It was just such a flood, flood-ridden season, constantly wet. It's like the soil was trying to digest anything growing out of it. But, um, yeah, I mean, in that sort of season, that's where you – your, your 501, your, your horn silica is good and silica having this um, magnifying effect on sunlight and it just assists with the thickening of the of the walls of the of the of the skin of the, the leaves and the uh, the resistance of plants to uh, mildew or even that sort of digesting effect of the soil and things like snails and slugs. Um, or even just the speeding of, of ripening. So one year we had Merlot that just got stuck. It just wouldn't ripen anymore and we, we uh, sprayed the, the 501, the silica, for three days in a row and, the, and the, the ripeness just jumped away almost too much. So, um, yeah, basically the other side of the coin is that if you're always worried about doing things at the perfect time, uh, which – which I guess I did after a while, uh, having had the odd failure like that, that actually can mean you don't even try to do anything because you, you've never actually got time or it's never the perfect time or it's not convenient or you've got to go somewhere or whatever and, and you end up not doing anything. So my challenge is still to say to myself, yeah, look, it's not the perfect time. So I guess the challenge is to try to um, overcome the fear of doing things at the wrong time and, and just get out and do things you know, when, when you do have the time and, and just have a go and don't be too caught up in the in the rules of biodynamics and, and just get out there and do what you can because it's still going to be better than doing nothing at all because it's not the perfect time. Yeah. Is there ever a particularly perfect time? And just intriguing to hear that story of the starlings with so many different points hanging off it. One thing I've just taken out of that is, you know, I was hearing about your innovative experimental mindset. You were trying something new whilst not even being entirely convinced of its effectiveness to start with. That ability to suspend disbelief, because a number of people wouldn't have suspended disbelief. They wouldn't have got to that point. So that idea that you of you pushing yourself a little bit further in order to run an experiment and also trying to find that purest practical balance, if that's the way to put it, between the purest principles on the one end of biodynamic methods, but also what is practical you know, on the other. What can you actually work with on a day-to-day basis? Trying to get that balance right. But again, I also heard you were continuing to tap into the old wisdom coming up from Steiner and the grassroots of biodynamic practice. For instance, that peppering process, that sounded to me as a layperson as a sort of another inoculation preparation process. Um, it seemed to be in line with the idea of the minute dilution of materials that nonetheless have disproportionate effects because of what the the intentional energies that are put into them and the wider scale cosmic forces acting to sort of energize them in effect. You know, for instance, as you were noticing, um, the results of the pepper preparations when they were applied in line with accurate biodynamic calendar guidelines. But yeah, um, Andrew, if I could just jump in there, because it's not really um, even limited to to those sorts of practices like 
takes me back to John Hodgkinson coming out to Rosnay a few years ago with a group, uh, might have been a workshop, and we stood as a group and that, at that time we were getting nailed by cockatoos. So, I mean, these are natives, so I would never do a peppering of natives, native species. I think that might be <laughs> bad karma. But basically um, John had a view that, you know, if we all stand together here and we just nicely ask these cockatoos mm-hmm. to go down mm-hmm. the river and leave our olive trees alone, stop going in there and just basically chewing them the bits just for fun, which is all they were doing. They were just snapping twigs off and you'd walk through the grove and there's twigs all over the ground. They're just, they're just being a pest. And, you know, it actually worked. These um, cockatoos left us alone for a few days. Um, that was amazing. And there's, well, I've got a, an Indigenous friend as well who, who came and she was on the farm and she's going, you know, you, you talk to the boss. You're talking to the, she's talking about the big, you know, the big kangaroos, the the uh, the eastern greys. There's heaps of them on the farm, and she's like, they're the boss. Well, not the only boss. There's also other bosses, but you just talk to these guys and um and and tell them what you want and and sort of put your intention into the land. So I mean, I you know that that side of things, I haven't really gone down the path very far, but yeah, it's certainly there's no reason to to discount these things or. We'll say they're impossible. I really think you've just got to have that open mind to to at least see if 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 you can see a difference. And that intriguing story about those cockatoos and uh, on your property and John Hodgkinson, who you've just mentioned, and he's another guest in the series. And we'll be talking to John, and his interview will be available so that people can hear his biodynamic insights. But again, I just love that idea of a dialogue taking place a a conversation a sort of conversation with the animals with the birds perhaps going back to an understanding in some shape or form that there is a deep connection between ourselves and the other species be they plant or animal with which we share the earth if only we could more often listen and tap into that undeniable connection for instance, that at the genetic level, it's absolutely solid, scientifically demonstrated fact that connection is there. But you know, can we can we find other ways of tapping into it? In another episode of this series, a fruit grower down in South Australia describes having a sort of dialogue, a sort of conversation with his fruit trees, his cherry trees, in terms of the black spot fungus infestation that they're encountering down there, and he's been trying to work out in communication with the trees, how best to deal with that. So as a layperson listening to this, but with an understanding going back a long ways because of my environmental science background, that holism principle that everything is connected to everything else, it seems to me that these stories, um, anecdotes point to that almost being taken to a gold standard within biodynamic practice. That That's how it appears to me, it seems to me. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of every, everything is totally connected and um, it's only our minds that are sort of creating limitation artificially, yeah, or you wonder, anyway. I couldn't agree more. And, and now, as we move through this interview towards the end, Sam, it's time to shift the focus one last time to the future, specifically to the future for you and your farm there. So as we come to the end of this very thought-provoking interview, what does the future hold for you, your family, and Rosnay property down there? Okay, well, I mean, I have 
no plans of leaving. I feel very blessed to live here and with uh, my wife as well. She loves it here and my parents love it here. Um, you know, what's the next generation going to do? I guess that's always uh, a question and and you can't make them do anything. And, and when they, my kids no doubt see that there's a lot of work involved in running a farm like this and they might think that they'd be better off doing something else and fair enough and I hope they go out into the wider world and, and succeed at their own thing but if they ever wanted to come back or even if they don't, they can always call this place home and um, I just think um, to be able to work in a family business is a real blessing and uh, I'd like to continue doing that any way we can but we also are part of this community and so whatever happens, I feel like, you know, our future is assured because we've got these beautiful neighbours and, and uh, the, the community farm that we're part of. Uh, there's, there's this um, social ecosystem, there's, there's skills and talents and <clears throat> people's abilities uh, and, you know, we work together in so many different ways that uh, I'm not worried about the future. I think whatever happens... Um, We'll be right uh, through, you know, through family and through community. So I'm optimistic and um, I don't listen to the radio too much these days. I'm just trying to stay optimistic and I think we'll be fine. <laughs> Sam, you mentioned a community connection there. And as mentioned in the introduction, there is a community title set up you have down there on Rosnay or near Rosnay, a covenant of growers arrangement. Do you want to say a bit more about that? I've heard from other guests in the series there is often a, a great importance attaching to community approaches and benefits of biodynamic growing. So do you want to say a bit more about your particular setup there? Yeah, I'd love to. Well, you know, we're part of a community title subdivision of, of, a, of a farm that was originally 140 hectares, uh, 340 acres, uh, into 12 blocks, uh, 12 farm blocks. And because there was already two houses on the farm, where we, we had an additional ten house blocks. So basically, all the farm blocks have a house block. It's it's like a, having a, a unit in a block of flats, except it's on flat. It's on flat ground. It's you know instead of an elevator, we've got an irrigation system. Instead of uh, gardens around the building, we've got uh, common land, which is all areas with um, biodiversity and trees and stuff in between all the uh, production areas. And uh, it took took five years or so, but that that concept uh, suddenly took off, and we've just got these most fantastic neighbours now who are part of the Rivers Road Organic Farms um, scheme or community, and doing different things. So no one's really beholden to each other. It's you know the aim of the subdivision is for everyone to be uh, self reliant and um, and viable as farmers. And so, you know, that's an important point is that we're a farm. We're not a, we're not a, uh, like a suburban development. And so, you know, all, all your sort of activities are focused on being viable farmers and also being organic. So that was another big one. So all the different blocks have to maintain their organic certification. Um, and that keeps us together as well. It gives us a common sort of thread, a common goal. And the types of people who've come here have been right into that sort of organic farming, biodynamics, uh, natural living, permaculture, natural buildings. And um, we're all getting on really well and we actually work constructively constructively together quite well. So it's been a, a fantastic 
thing to be part of and um yeah it gives me hope for the future so wonderful to hear that whole idea of communal cooperation the sharing of knowledge the the sharing of energies possibility of developing multi-perspective responses to dealing with future challenges as in other areas of society given the interlinked challenges we are facing environmentally economically and socially one would think it would be a no-brainer but unfortunately such community approaches don't occur anywhere near as often as they should do i would have thought you know coming together the coming together of groups of people in alliance in community or however you might describe it to deal with challenges to come up with fresh ideas to be more innovative it just seems so obvious it's just a shame that we don't seem to be able to apply that alliance community alliance idea at a wider scale throughout society more generally i mean it goes against the whole i'm the king of my castle mentality of of private uh, total private on private ownership but you know if there's anyone out there any farmers out there with you know with a, a farm that's you know that they're keen to do something with you know they should come and visit us and and talk to some of us and see what see what we've done here and you know i'd love to you know help someone do something similar Well, that leads nicely into the last couple of questions as we round off this excellent interview. You've just given us a bit of advice there on community approaches and cooperation in growing practice. But do you have any other specific parting advice um, for those who might be wanting to know more about biodynamics, growers going down that path or people coming to the subject for the very first time? Where could they or should they start? It's it's a I think it's it's a matter of I guess as I said before you sort of just have a go just just do a bit do a bit in your own garden even uh, read up about it meet some other growers um, get some get some five hundred in your hands and smell it and squeeze it and try to just get a feel for it and put it out in your garden and see if you notice any difference and so it's just kind of like small steps and just have a go rather than being too skeptical like it's good to be skeptical mm-hmm. but. Uh, it's also good just to have a go and be open to unexpected uh, results. So, yeah, um, I don't really, I don't really know what other advice to give except, um, yeah, just have a go. And Sam, that sounds a bit like a response to the very last question I was going to ask you. But to give you one last opportunity, in addition to that very nice short take-home message of have a go and get on with it in the most positive and nice sense. Do you have any other short take-home messages for listeners which could help them get a handle on your ideas? I think, I mean, Biodynamic Agriculture Australia is, you know, the, the old Farming and Gardening Association. They're the ones who've brought us all together and, you know, putting this podcast together. I really have to recommend uh, subscribing to their email newsletters, uh, getting their newsleaf um, printed newsletter, uh, going to their events, I think there's a biodynamic group in Sydney. Maybe join that. Um, there's <clears throat> plenty of ways to to connect up these days with the internet and all that stuff. So I just think, um, yeah, when we started out, me and Dad, um, that was a key approach was to go to biodynamic uh, conferences you know, down in Hunter Valley or wherever and meet other growers and <clears throat> just network a bit and and yeah, meet people. So I guess that's the key message there. And that's the great thing about um, the BAA. So finally, this is a brilliant place to wrap up the interview, Sam. 
It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you today. I know you've given our audience a lot of thought-provoking ideas which can help their own next steps towards getting into biodynamics or applying biodynamic growing methods. And taken from some of the fascinating and environmentally protective approaches to growing you have described. Along with other guests in the series, your unique story today has given us great examples of the important ability of biodynamics to regenerate soil, supercharge organic growing, restore biodiversity and work with Mother Nature. And so, Sam, sadly, it's time to say goodbye. On behalf of both the podcast production and support organisations which made this interview possible, they are Hope Incorporated Australia and Biodynamic Agriculture Australia Limited. I want to thank you so very much for our conversation today. My pleasure. Thanks, Andrew. Yes, and, and thanks to, uh, to Hope for uh, putting it together as well. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to an episode in the podcast series Biodynamic Farmers and Gardeners in Australia. The series was produced by Householders Options to Protect the Environment, Hope Incorporated Australia, with the generous funding support of Biodynamic Agriculture Australia Limited. It has been a pleasure to help raise awareness of some of the environmentally protective values of biodynamic growing practice in its ability to regenerate the biological health of soil, supercharge organic growing, restore biodiversity and work in harmony with Mother Nature. Please consult the episode show notes for possible follow-up material on topics discussed in interview and any relevant contact details should you wish to respond to anything you have heard. And if you enjoyed the episode, please consider promoting it across your networks and giving it a positive rating in your preferred podcast app. You can also give us feedback via the short five-minute online survey using the link also available in the show notes. My name is Andrew Nicholson, producer of the series, and thank you for listening.